Good afternoon, and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. We're online at independent.org. That's I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. You can also find our April print edition across the city in our red and white news boxes in more than 60 public libraries, as well as independent bookstores, cafes, social movement centers, and other venues. It's great to be with you here on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. Uh, my co-host, Amiga Garian, is out today, but we will have a chance to hear from her later in the show. And wow, what an action-packed show we have for you today. In our opening segment, we'll hear from Priscilla Grimm the Brooklyn-based digital media activist who was arrested at a cop city protest in Atlanta on March 5th and was held on uh, without bail for a month before finally being released last week. Later in the show, we'll follow up on the violent police raid that shut down an Easter Sunday gathering at Sunset Park organized by Mexicanos Unidos. And we'll talk with NYPD watchdog and indie columnist John Tufel about the fat new contract Mayor Eric Adams signed last week with the largest of New York City's five police unions. But first we turn to the story of a New York City activist who has finally made it home from Cop City protests in Atlanta after being jailed for a month. Priscilla Grimm was arrested at a music festival in in the Wilani Forest on the night of March 5th. Uh, she and 22 others uh, were charged with domestic terrorism on what can only be uh, called trumped-up evidence, uh, things like uh, wearing uh, black clothes and having mud stains on their pants uh, were cited uh, as uh, evidence by the district, De- the DeKalb County District Attorney's Office for these serious charges. Uh, and so pe- most of the arrestees were initially denied bail and uh, uh, pres- uh, jail for uh, a month under uh, some pretty appalling conditions along with the others. And uh, so we're really excited to have Priscilla uh, join us here in a minute. She's a longtime digital media activist uh, here in New York, was an editor for the Occupied, uh, Occupied Wall Street Journal newspaper at the height of the Occupy movement and has continued uh, to run a number of Occupied-themed uh, digital um, uh, social media pages and it's just been a real force in activism here in New York for many years and joined in the Stop Cop City movement as well. Uh, Priscilla Grimm, welcome to WBAI Radio. Thank you, John. It's an honor. Yes. So first of all, can you just uh, tell us uh, how it feels to be uh, out of jail and uh, back uh, home at your apartment in Brooklyn? Oh, my God. I'm so glad to be back. Um, I keep joking. I'm back in New York City where things make sense. Um, I mean, everything is I'm enjoying all of it. I'm enjoying being free, being with my daughter, not having the sounds of slamming metal and relentless lighting invading my dreams. You know, it's a lot of it's a lot of things. But my my experience about that is not unique. Right. There's like millions of people going home from jail every day in the United States. So, Right. Um, and before we talk any more about uh, your time at the DeKalb County Jail, uh, can you uh, talk a little bit about why you went to Atlanta uh, to join the Cop City protests? 
Yeah, well, you know, I grew up in the South between Atlanta and Nashville. Um, my, I grew up in a, a town called Murfreesboro, Tennessee, in Nashville. And my grandparents, both sets of my grandparents lived in Atlanta. I was born in Atlanta, um, you know, and just, and I, I did a year of university at uh, Emory University there. And I lived there for a year as I was a young adult and uh, really wanted to make my life there. But even then, there were a lot of problems around making a life in the South that it just didn't seem like it was possible. Um, so there was that. And then I, I heard about this movement of people who had been gathering after years of literally, there's been literally years of community rejection of the Cop City project. And after even two full days of city council testimony, the Atlanta city council passed the project into development, despite what the community actually asked for. Um, and so when I heard about that and I heard about the murder of George Gita, um, and Gita what it was actually, a, you know, an activist who was uh, a part of an encampment in the forest where this thing will be built. Uh, if, if they yes. get away with it. And they were sitting in their tent cross-legged with their hands up and shot 13 times by police and is the first environmental activist to be murdered by the police in the United States. Um, it's the dangerous escalation of militarization of our police state and effectively it would become Disneyland built for police gangs to come down and vacation at. And, you know, that includes um, police precincts and, you know, squads from other states. Um, so when they called, when the, when the call was issued for people to come down for convergence, um, I couldn't pass it up. I mean, it's everything together. It's, you know, Atlanta needs these green spaces these corporations who are invested into the project are manipulating local process. And, you know, we don't need to be putting more money into policing anywhere in the United States. Um, and, you know, this will just start off an entire, um, you know, uh, an entire theme of these, these spaces being built. There's one being built in, um, Pittsburgh right now. There's another one that's being built or has been built in Chicago. They're building another one in, um, in Hawaii. I mean, this is the next trick of capitalism, these cop cities and also a way for the police to see us as further, not human and to, you know, basically train against community Floyd protests in some ways. Absolutely. It absolutely is. And they're trying to put it off as something about public safety. And it's not. I mean, cities are filled with communities, not enemy combatants, which is what Cop City wants to train police into thinking about us as. I can't think of anything that would make us less safe than a cop city. Right. And we, we've uh, talked about Cop City on this show and in, 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 in previous shows. But for any any listeners that are still, you know, uh, wanting to learn more or catch up on uh, Cop City, uh, it's the uh, featured uh, cover story in the current edition of The Independent. Uh, my colleague Amba Gagarian also traveled down to Atlanta for that uh, convergence at the beginning of 
March and wrote a, a really outstanding uh, cover article, over 3,000 words, uh, you know, really, uh, really thorough um, coverage of both the movement and, and what Cop City uh, means. So uh, people can find that online at independent.org um, or in all those uh, venues I listed at the top of the show where we put the paper out um, each month. So um, it's, it, you know, as you say, it's an important topic and, and people can find out more from uh, Amba's uh, coverage in our, in our current issue. Um, so you, uh, you were arrested along with others and the Atlanta media and many uh, local politicians there who support cop city uh, ins- insisted the protests had been stirred up by a small group of, quote, outside agitators. We've heard this line before, but uh, can you describe uh, the size and scale of the uh, actual on-the-ground anti-cop, move- anti-cop city movement in Atlanta, which was also participating in that week of, uh, of protest? Well, I was only there for two days <laughs> just okay. to, like, level out expectations. So when I was there... There seemed to be a little more than a thousand people actually on the site and all the on the ground people I talked to said it was the largest convergence that they'd experienced so far. And, um, and further the night I was arrested, I was arrested with a little over 40 people and the arresting officers looked at us and asked us to raise our hands if we were from Georgia and then asked us to raise our hands if we were not from Georgia. Everyone who is from Georgia was released without charges. Everyone who is not from Georgia was put in the quote, you'll get out of the get out of jail pile or or go to jail pile. They're sending us to jail and not telling us even what our charges were. And I, I kept asking and they didn't even tell me until I got to the holding cell what the charge was. Right. And, uh, uh, a very serious charge that comes with uh, uh, about zero evidence, but we won't uh, dwell on that at at this time. But um, so once you're um, you were taken to the De- uh, DeKalb uh, County Jail, um, can you uh, describe the the conditions that you and uh, others experienced while you were being held there? Yeah, I mean, I wish I could say any of this was just specific to us being political prisoners, but it was not. This is how the DeKalb, and it's pronounced DeKalb in Georgia. Okay. The the DeKalb County Jail. Really, this is the way that they roll. Like, my experience was horrible, and I was subjected to and witnessed human rights abuses while being psychologically tortured for a month, which is what just happened. Um. Uh, we were subjected to just torturous sounds and treatment like 24 hours a day. Um, they only fed us every 12 to 14 hours. So only twice a day. Um, they got away with saying it was three meals because one of those times, so they would feed us breakfast around between three and five o'clock in the morning. And then they wouldn't feed us our lunch slash dinner until three to five o'clock at night. Um, that was one thing. The other thing that they kept the pods where we were at, like it had to be close to 55 degrees. I can't imagine it was any warmer than that. Um, it was really cold. And we heard that from the men's side of the prison, they had the exact opposite problem. Um, that was way too hot. So they're, so we're getting starved. We we're not warm. Um, Myself and the other activists really um, 
organize the pod to get uh, to file grievances uh, with the county, which you could do through these little electronic tablets that they gave us. And we issued so many of them that they actually gave us uh, more blankets, which was great. But um, issues um, that culminated in like three days before I got out, we actually had a flood that was, it flooded out three of the pods in my block. So mm-hmm. like each block had like four to five pods and each pod had like 20 to 30 people. And it was basically standing water that the inmates were cleaning up because one of the guards tried to start cleaning it up and she messed up her sneakers and started crying, which was kind of funny <laughs> um, because she was so mean. I'm just saying. Yeah, right. <laughs> but but they were having the, you know, having the inmates clean this up without footwear. Like they're wearing like slippers, like slides and socks. They're not wearing actual shoes and it's contaminated water. It was like really horrible. I mean, there was like black mold everywhere. Um, we we're lucky if there wasn't mold on our food. And if we saw the mold on our food, we were lucky if we could get it swapped out. Like it really depended if the guard liked you or not, or didn't see you as trouble. Um, the first three days I was there, um, the guards kept trying to like step in front of me to get me to like run into them which is really like weird and hard. Um, So yeah, it was, it was like over 30 days of just trying to think of how can I just survive today and be okay. Um, You know, I was really lucky. We were lucky in that, you know, the guards and the, you know, the jailers were really who we were most afraid of. You know, most of the people who go to jail in Georgia it's misdemeanors from traffic violations or, or like, you know, um, driving license things. Like it's, it's so innocuous what people are going to jail for, for like one, two, three days. And and during that time, it's totally messing up their entire life. It must have, you know, like you can't go to jail. You can't take care of like everything just falls apart. Right. People have children. They have have lives. Yeah. And they're being, uh, sidetracked into this uh, into this jail. System. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, you know, this is this same jail is also at other times uh, held uh, notable individuals. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was sent there in October of 1960 for a, a misdemeanor traffic violation and was yeah. Uh, yeah. originally sentenced to do four months of hard labor, uh, though. Uh, uh, John F. Kennedy in his presidential campaign interceded with the governor of Georgia and MLK was released shortly uh, before the election. Um, so uh, a long history here with this uh, with this jail facility and, and uh, all sorts of people being swept into it. And of course, it brings to mind the situation here in New York City with Rikers Island, where exactly. uh, people are often held pre-trial for months or even years. Um, uh, uh, with all, you know, also incredibly uh, difficult uh, circumstances. Uh, just lastly, before we have to go here, uh, can you talk a little bit about the uh, support you received uh, while you and the others were um, on the inside, and just uh, you know, kind of uh, how you're feeling as you move forward, and I mean, you still have these uh, charges hanging over you, and prosecutors who seem intent on manufacturing a case uh, where where there is none. 
Right. I mean, so first, I am super lucky. I have amazing friends and amazing community here in New York City, and I send out love to everyone because they've been so supportive and really helped out my daughter and I in getting me, like, books and postcards in the jail and making me feel loved. And since I've come home, like, it's been everything, you know, I could hope for, just so much kindness and softness. It's just good. And even though the charges are heavy, the only thing I can do right now is just stay positive. And, you know, the thing is that any, but this could happen to anybody like with the statistically so many millions of people again are going to jail and prison in the United States that it's more likely statistically that you will become part of the system than not which is why we all should be committing to a vision of abolition and and bringing this whole system to a close because it doesn't serve anybody. It doesn't make us safer in any way. And all it does is really just injure people, bring more harm to those who don't need more harm brought it. Nobody needs harm brought in their lives, but you know, it just brings more harm and trauma to everyone involved. Um, and I'm super lucky in that I have a group of people who are supporting me, uh, you know, as I come out of this and try to move into the next chapter, whatever that is, and fighting the charges. Um, they built a site. Uh, my good friend Jeff has built a site uh, called it's supportpriscilla.org. Um, if people want to go to it to learn about the case and keep up with it. Um I'm just working hard on it. I have a great attorney from Atlanta that um, we really jive together. We, you know, work together really well and uh, the vibe is there and I'm just hopeful. Right. Um, You know, I, I'm just a simple blogger. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So Uh, very good at what you do with that. Um, But uh, Priscilla Grimm, a a digital media activist uh, based here in New York city, Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today on the Independent News Hour. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You bet. Stop Cop City. It'll never be built. Let's do this. All right. And you can keep up on Priscilla's case at supportpriscilla.org. And we'll be back after this short music break. A parallel to canines whistling to birth a nation. It's one solution, I guess. Oh, absolution's the only reward you'll confess.
that was Crypto by Michael Sarah Palin, a punk band that performed at the recent Stop Cop City Music Festival in Atlanta. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton, editor of The Independent. In our second segment today, we look at a policing controversy closer to home in South Brooklyn. On Sunday, the NYPD and Parks Police violently shut down a community gathering in Sunset Park organized by Mexicanos Unidos. The group has previously held an unpermitted open-air market on Sundays at the park. The market, known as Plaza Tonatia, was shut down on Sunday, April 2nd for not having proper vending licenses. The group returned this Sunday to celebrate the Easter holiday with no intention to engage in vending. It didn't matter to the police, however. The Independence Amr Gagarian was on hand and recorded this footage when uh, when the NYPD and Parks Police moved to shut down the event. Yesterday, Amba spoke with Paz, a representative of Mexicanos Unidos, who talked about the group's activities and explained in greater detail what happened on Sunday. Our work intersects the political, cultural, and social aspects of our li- all our lives, so it, it has transcended just like the vending um, that sometimes is like the only thing that people see sometimes. Our membership is primarily like immigrant working class families. Usually, the, the puestos, the people vending, they're led by women. Um, you know, Mexican, Caribbean, Asian. We have Central and South American participants. And yeah, it's a, it's it's a, it's a diverse. It's diversity from different diasporas. We we had plans this year of starting our third year of Plaza, um, but you know, following the the events from recent weeks, um, we we stopped it. But again, like I said, since it, since it's transcended. Um, like the, the vending aspects of it, it is more political and socio-political um, in the way that we're moving. So this Sunday, we didn't have any plans to vend. Uh, we had invited participants and community members to join us for a celebratory event. Uh, many participants, they either went to church on like Friday or Saturday or very early on Sunday morning to be there with us. We asked them to come like after 11 because we also didn't want to um, just have them there again for tw- another 12 hours like we did the week before. So we had made food to give away. We had cultural and musical presentations prepared, danzantes, musica de bomba, tecuanes. Uh, we had an Easter egg hunt prepared for the children. We had piñatas and gifts, a study, and a rosary uh, prayer planned. But we were unable to complete the program. Since we got there, I mean, it was evident the, the police presence, uh, like the tension, uh, the participants who came earlier, they told us that, you know, that, that you could feel it when you walk in, just how tense the situation was. It was very like us and them, like they were uh, all on one side by the entrance, and then we were in the area where we planned to gather. Uh, like a little before 1 p.m., the Danzantes were holding an indigenous ceremony and we were uh, in, the, in, like, the area where we were gathering behind the Bansantes. We were distributing food. There was children on the ground doing, like, arts and crafts. It was a very calm area. There was, like, children sleeping on the floor on blankets. 
And we noticed, a couple of us noticed how the, the Parks Department enforcement agents were gathering by their cars. They were all putting on their black gloves and they were like convening. Um, and so we, you know, we, we, we figured that that meant that they were going to come towards us. They were going to attempt to do something. So we created uh, a line of defense primarily in front of the children. And yeah, within like maybe seconds, they rushed towards, towards that area. And, and we, we stopped them. People put themselves on the line so that they wouldn't cross over because otherwise they would have, they would have rushed the families that were grabbing food so they could sit down and enjoy their Easter Sunday. Um, and we weren't going to let it happen. I guess their intention was, I'm assuming, to confiscate the food and the tables. But, but when they weren't let through, I guess like chaos erupted after that. And it persisted for about like 20 to 30 minutes. We were able to de-escalate it and, and they retreated. But, but yeah, it left a lot of like the families and the community members, even like the bystanders, uh, people that were had nothing to do with us, even they got rushed by the parks enforcement agents. Everybody was just in shock from like the sinister assault. After they retreated, we heard that they 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 did a call for backup. Throughout this, there was a police car in front saying that we were gathering unlawfully. Mm -hmm. um, they were calling it a protest, even though we were explicit that it wasn't a protest; that it was just an Easter Day celebration. But they but they told us that if we didn't clear the area, they were going to begin arrest. After that, it did kind of calm down a little. We we didn't have any any uh, any other altercation. Um, and so we started doing the rosary prayer. We made a group and we started praying, but we weren't able to finish it. NYPD came in and they like surrounded the area and they basically just shoved us out. So we left and they kicked us out. They literally escorted us. We ended up walking on Fifth Avenue. We came back mm -hmm. up on Sixth Avenue and then we dispersed. We, we just called everything off. It was just better for us to keep all the families, the children safe. Um, we didn't have any arrests, so that was a victory in itself. Um, and unfortunately, to Plaza um, sympathizers, they came afterwards because we did have an assemblea planned at 3 p.m., but we couldn't do it, obviously, because we were stopped by the police. And so they weren't present before when the police had kicked everybody out of the park. So they were just expressing their frustrations. And in the videos, like, you can hear uh, one of the comrades say, you know, just don't touch me. And then that's when they rushed him. It was like five um uh, NYPD officers that grabbed him, they threw him into a truck, to a, a van, and then they, they took him off to the 72nd. And then I think another another comrade was also arrested after that. Uh. So we will continue organizing around this, mobilizing around this. Right As of right now, uh, we're going to continue to hold space in Sunset Park on Sunday. So we do invite um, anybody who has time and is around to come and show support. And then other than that, any other action that is planned can be through our social media at Plaza Tenatiu or at Mexicanos Ex Unidos. Uh, we'll distribute that information through there. That was Paz, an organizer with Mexicanos Unidos and Plaza Tonatia, speaking with the Indies Amber Gagarian. Amba has been following Plaza Tonatia and Mexicanos Unidos since last year, and earlier today I spoke with Amba and asked her what made Plaza Tonatia so attractive when she first encountered it. 
Right, John. Well, I had heard about Plaza Tunatia, and you know, in in early 2021, uh, it was uh, founded by Mexicanos Unidos, a group that formed in the initial weeks of the George Floyd uprising that roiled the city three summers ago. And then by early 2021, Mexicanos Unidos had begun to shift most of its energy toward uh, toward launching the Plaza, which is now their central organizing project. And uh, at the end of the the first summer, there were 20 vendors. At the end of last summer, there were 88 vendors. It's a very crowded market um, at the intersection of 6th and 44th in Sunset Park, right at that entrance of Sunset Park. There are people sending selling household items, crafts, lots of food, um, and not just Latino vendors, but other sort of immigrant vendors. Um, as well as there's a political aspect where you have Mexicanos Unidos, which is mostly a sort of socialist community organization that has their political um, uh, sort of literature table, and they also hold uh, assemblies among the, the vendors um, during every plaza. So it's sort of this cross between a vibrant cultural market, uh, family-oriented in Sunset Park, very reflective of the Sunset Park community, and, uh, and a sort of political um yeah, education among those people. Right. And can, and can you describe more what you saw on Sunday as that raid unfolded? Absolutely. So as I explained, uh, the plaza was very vibrant happening any week with not much police, police engagement last year and even the year before. And then this year, you know, they only uh, operate in the warm months. They were coming to set up their first plaza on the 2nd, April 2nd, that's two Sundays ago. And they were ve- they were trying to set up vending tables. The police immediately came, both Parks Police and NYPD stopped them. There was a long standoff where they were, you know, trying to ticket anyone who seemed like they were setting up vending and protesters and supporters were trying to get in the way of that. And so this Sunday they decided not to vend. And uh, I arrived uh, around 12 p.m. this most recent Sunday, April 9th, there was Danzantes, the traditional sort of Mexican dance, doing a performance with a circle of people, probably over 100 people watching that. Behind them, there was a food table um, with free food, and then behind that there was a blanket with children playing and sort of educational activities going on. You know, uh, the two reasons that the police sort of used for uh, um, raiding and attacking the situation was that it was either vending or a protest. Uh, uh, you know, in my opinion, it didn't really seem like either. The only thing that suggested a protest was that there, this is a political organization that organizes the market, although not all of the vendors um, so much reflect that all the time. And uh, and that there were people holding signs, you know, that said things like pan y libertad, you know, bread and freedom. But it did feel like a celebration, an Easter gathering. So there was some tension in the air because, as Paz said, the police had been there for a while. You know, we know what happened the week prior. But things were kind of chill. And then sometime between 1230 and 1, as she said, I was speaking to somebody I know from Sunset Park, and I noticed cops sort of running towards that area, you know, between the the, the sports fence and the uh where all the children were and and the food tables were. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what happened? So I run into there, and it it seemed essentially like the parks police were with a couple NYPD officers were kind of just rocking that part of the crowd. It was really unclear why oftentimes communication with police is unclear, but it was more unclear than ever because, as I said, it didn't appear that they were doing anything illegal. All of a sudden, there's a mix of police and supporters and vendors up against the fence. The police were grabbing this older woman. It was uh, very intense. Uh, People were, 
you know, putting their hands up, yelling fuera, fuera, which means, you know, get out of the park or, or out, out in Spanish. Uh, then things uh, sort of settled back down for a little while. Uh, but before I left, I saw quite a few NYPD um, police uh, from 72nd Precinct uh, grouping up, gathering towards the entrance of 44th and 6th, calling for backup and saying that they wanted to fully shut it down, which uh, they did by 2 p.m., and and they were saying, you know, they continued to make announcements between that first spurt of interaction and then 2 p.m. when they went in and shut everything down, saying you cannot have protests in the park, you can't have an unpermitted protest. But then, you know, now their MO, uh, their public MO has, uh, from the, a spokesperson from the city parks department, is saying that both Parks Enforcement Patrol and the NYPD conducted a joint operation to address what they refer to as illegal vending. Although, as I said, there was no vending, and the only two people they did arrest uh, just showed up for the assembly that was planned at 3 p.m. Right. So, uh, even though there wasn't vending going on this Sunday, let's talk about that uh, a little bit more, uh, because uh, the initial impetus... Uh, for creating Plaza Tonatia in 2021 is that there, there's a, a real uh, shortage of licenses for vendors. Uh, for, there's a real shortage of licenses for street vendors in New York City. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. So that was a, a big emphasis was not only the shortage of um uh, the shortage of licenses, but the uh, uptick in, in policing of the vendors. Uh, uh, some of the the members of Mexicanos Unidos, one of their uh, friends, was getting um, basically harassed by the, the police or, you know, being ticketed and told to leave. And so that led to them to want to create a space where, you know, there's power in numbers. And if they're all doing this together and the community's involved, maybe there's less chance that they'll be ticketed. There are an estimated 20,000 street vendors in the city, um, but unfortunately there are only 3,000 carts, Department of um, Health permitted carts, which is what you have to sell out of, uh, uh, that uh, exist. And the Department of Health holds lotteries every few years to distribute excess permits, but the average wait is more than a decade. So there's only 3,000 of those carts to sell food out of. And then uh, a lot of other vendors in the city and at the plaza also sell, like I said, household items and good goods. So the numbers on that are that in 1979, the New York City Council created a cap of 853 on the number of merchandise licenses. And there is such a long waiting list that there have not been any new names taken for the list since 1992. Um, that all being the case, uh, uh, enforcement of, of uh, street vendors has only risen since the pandemic, um, and it's both the Department of Consumer and Worker Protection and the NYPD that enforce that, and uh, they've been enforcing a lot more recently because between May 2021 and 2022, they only had about 2,400 tickets issued, and then they had uh, five, over 5,000 for the following year. Um, so that is they are responding to a real sort of upsurge. Right. It, it sounds like right. It, it sounds like in uh, in Sunset Park, we're seeing people essentially being criminalized uh, for existing. Uh, Amy Gagarin, want to thank you uh, for joining us today and for your reporting on this important story. And we'll be back with more after this short break. Como 
Ancion para mi America by Soledad Bravo. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton. Uh, before we continue on to our next segment, we will be looking at uh, NYPD and policing uh, from another angle uh, with indie columnist John Tufel. We're really excited to have him coming back on the show. But first, I want to encourage everyone who can do so to give to WBAI, whether you make a generous one-time contribution, whatever you can do, or even better, become a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 a month. And and really, when you do that, you become a part of the financial bedrock of the station. Uh, The WBAI buddies are so crucial to the ongoing survival of WBAI. You can call 212-209-209. 2950, or you can go to online to give number two, wbai.org. And when you do that, you make it possible to hear uh, the voices that we're bringing on this show today. You heard earlier in the show from Priscilla Grimm, uh, who was arrested and held in jail for a month uh, for being at the Cop City protests in Atlanta a long time a digital uh, media activist here in New York City who finally got home in the last few days and did her first uh, broadcast interview since her release right here on WBAI uh, a little while ago. Also, you got to hear just a few minutes ago the voice of a uh, organizer, uh, Paz from Mexicano Sonidos, a group that's uh, really doing uh, some very uh, important community organizing and advocacy side by side with. Uh, street vendors in in uh, Sunset Park, and when you call two one two two zero nine two nine five zero, you make that all possible. You help us pay our bills, you know, keep that antenna and that transmitter going atop four times square in the middle of New York City. That signal goes out across all five boroughs and far into the suburbs up in the Hudson River Valley and across Long Island and down through New Jersey. WBI, and we all know it, it's absolutely unique station. Uh, and the reason WBI has been on the air for 63 years is because we have a community here and a community where people step up and do their part to support this station, uh, help, help it meet its, you know, very fundamental ex- expenses. The station runs on a very shoestring budget, but it does still require your support, uh, 212-209-2950. Or you can go to give number two wbai.org. And if you can become a WBAI buddy during this show, uh, that would be amazing. You can do it for as little as $10 a month. You get all sorts of awesome uh, uh, benefits from that. And uh, what can I say? 212-209-2950. Amba uh, couldn't be with us today. She had another commitment, but I know she would be urging you just as uh, uh, ardently to support this station 212-209-2950 or give number two wbai.org and and uh 
in the second half of the show, we'll uh, t- try to take a few calls as well at 212-209-2877. Again, that's 212-209-2877. We'd especially love to hear from uh, people who haven't uh, called the show before. Uh, we always welcome uh, new voices into uh, uh, the call-in uh, queue. Uh, 212-209-2877. Uh, but now uh, we're going to uh, continue our coverage of policing, and uh, uh, we're going to uh, talk with somebody uh, who always has uh, great insights on uh, on the NYPD and, and all of that. Uh, it's uh, he, uh, His name is John Tufel. He's the author of, our, uh, of a monthly, uh, this month in Eric Adams' uh, column for The Independent, um, he has a, a really brilliant article in our current print edition called uh, uh, looking at what exactly uh, judges do and, and kind of the well, we'll talk about it, but some of the uh, uh, fakery and in, in uh, how our whole judicial system is set up in the underlying um, principles. But uh, above all, John's been an incredible uh, watchdog of the NYPD uh, for many years. And uh, John, it's great to have you back on the show. Hey, John, good to be here. Right. So let's uh, jump into it. Uh, last Tuesday, uh, Mayor Adams announced that he was asking almost all city departments uh, to prepare another round of uh, budget cuts. Uh, and then the very next day, uh, he announced that he had reached a contract agreement uh, with the uh, Patrolman Benevolence Association, the largest of the five uh, police unions here in New York, um, and reached uh, on pretty generous terms for the PBA. Can you uh, outline uh, what what exactly this contract provides for. Yeah, absolutely. So, so first, those budget cuts you mentioned—it's a very funny thing. He has directed most city agencies to give four uh, percent cuts, and then a few get spared and get three percent cuts. And he's demanding that those cuts be identified within ten days, which is a very—I mean—that short sort of time frame. It feels like a very Elon Musk sort of move that a type of um move like fast and break move. things yeah yeah exactly that there's a little care for the uh what these cuts will lead to which obviously they will lead to reduced city services i mean that's the nature of cuts but but yeah as you said i mean in the same uh in the same couple of day periods that he did this he also announced that he has struck a deal with the head of the PBA um, we don't know all of the details of this deal yet. They haven't released a, a full term sheet. It's going to have to get voted on by PBA members. And also we'll talk about the city council's role in it. But yeah, so the headline here is that police officers who work, I mean, there's massive pay increases across the board. Police officers with five and a half years in the job are now going to make around $131,000, um, which just to put that in perspective is about $50,000 more than teachers uh, with five years on the job will make. Teachers make in the low 70s at five years, um, and police officers will now make $131,000. Um, there are other, um, uh, there are raises across the board uh, from the beginning. It's retroactive to 2017, which will mean very large payouts, sometimes probably uh, in the hundreds of thousands to some officers. Um, that's how large these uh, increases are. So to think about it in another way, um, the current, if you break it down to an hourly rate, right, and assume 40-hour 40 uh, 40 hour work weeks, 
the officer's hourly rates now will be higher than their one and a half time overtime rates that they currently receive. So the consequence of that is that overtime itself will now be massive. I mean, this this is such an incredibly generous uh, agreement that he has struck. He gave away the store. I mean, there is no other way to look at this agreement other than he I don't even I can't even imagine it was negotiated because I can't imagine what he could have asked for or what he asked for in this agreement, because there is no give backs. There is nothing. It is all upside to the police. And it really shows where Adams's priorities lie. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit more about the overtime and uh, in this uh, I'll give a little sneak preview of your article? We'll be uh, uh, posting online uh, on independent.org uh, tomorrow morning. But uh, you're saying that uh, the overtime pay uh, could top uh, over $90 an hour. And uh, there's this uh, practice within the department uh, called Callers for Dollars and uh, all the ways that uh, police officers can really uh, jack up their overtime pay. Yeah, there's Callers for Dollars. I mean, Gothamists just this week uh, released an audio recording that it, that a, an individual citizen had obtained um he accidentally left his phone on after police confiscated it uh and left his phone recording and it recorded these officers saying uh joking with each other about milking overtime milking it is the phrase that they use somewhat of a disgusting visual uh image but yes that's what they call it um collars for dollars obviously has been documented um this idea of processing more and more paperwork so that you can rack up overtime and if you use uh, Legal Aid's very helpful law enforcement lookup tool, you can see that in the last couple of years, uh, quite literally thousands of officers have managed to accrue $50,000, $60,070. The highest I saw is around $90,000 of overtime in a single year. And those numbers are just going to go up because now that the hourly rates are so much higher the overtime rates are going to be even higher than that. So that 90-something dollar figure you mentioned, that's only for five-year officers. So that's going to work out to an overtime rate of around $96 an hour for officers with 10 years, 15 years. I mean, I haven't done the math, but their overtime rates are going to be incredible. Uh, You know, easily into the high hundreds of dollars an hour for overtime, if not more than 200. Um, so, I mean, it, it, as I said, it's an incredibly generous package and it is going to result in officers uh, making, some officers will be making well over $200,000 a year, even just a couple of years into their careers as police officers. Right, because uh, it's really at about the five-year point where their pay really, uh, starts to spike uh, once yeah. they yeah. and it's actually that they're, very weird. they're you yeah. know, ready to make this their career. Right. And it's actually very weird because based on what the city has put out, they're saying that there have been retroactive raises of, of 3 to 4% every year from 2017. But if you do the math, that actually doesn't make any sense because these five-year officers are seeing a jump of around $50,000 a year, and you just don't get that from seven years of 3%, 4%. You just don't get it. So there is an additional bump 
that officers are receiving that I suppose we'll learn more about it when the full package comes out. There is also a, I mean, this is the type of thing that only a, I don't know, only a politician could dream up, but there is also a, I believe it's a 2.1% addition to everyone's salary. That's called a neighborhood policing differential that all it is, is a, is a pay bump. I mean, that's literally all it is. It's just 2.1% added to everyone's salary and they call it a neighborhood policing differential. It's got nothing to do with what type of police work they're doing, but that's yet another thing. There's uniform allowances. There's other cash payments. Um, it, again, I mean, I hate to keep repeating myself, but almost any other municipal employee of New York City, no matter what department you work for, you are going to be jealous of the police in this next round. It is, and they still, by the way, get their 22 years and full pension, uh, benefit. Right. Uh, and so this, the, uh, this, uh, a generous overtime pay, uh, the way the pension formula is calculated, is based on a police officer's average pay over the final three years of their career. Um, right. So uh, this is also going to really uh, uh, boost uh, the the pension uh, payments uh, officers will get in the future because there's this tradition of really maxing out your overtime in that final stretch on the department. Absolutely. And that's going to be a budgetary impact that we'll see down the line that, uh, you know, it's tradition for officers to, in their last three years, to max out their overtime as much as possible to increase their pension. Uh, their pension is 50% of the average of their last three years salary earned, and that includes overtime. So if they can manage to, let's say, if not double, if they can improve their salary by two thirds each year in their last three years, that means their pension is going to be looking a lot more like their final year of salary, which means they'll be getting close to a full salary for the rest of their life. Um, right. And they often they retire, retire in their mid to late forties after they yes, get those exactly. Changes. Yeah. So yeah. that's, that's, I mean, that, you know, it's, it's, it, all of this is very sad in a way, not just because it, not just because it shows Eric Adams' priorities, um, which are to cut all kinds of municipal funding from libraries to the Department of Investigations to Food Stamp uh, Administration, uh, you know, Human Resources Administration, to uh, oversight of police, to even things like fixing the roads and our sanitation and our rat problem, to cut all that, to give all that money to a police department that has shown itself to be essentially ineffectual in in reducing crime rates. Um, and w- what I find sad about it is, I, you know, I've been very critical of policing, right? But I do come at this from a place of love. And, it, you know, there's been a lot of studies done that show that police have heightened uh, issues with alcoholism, with depression. You know, there have been su- there's a higher suicide rate among law enforcement officers. And, you know, the reason for that is because these officers are the tip of the state's spear. I mean, they are the ones enacting this monopoly of violence, right? They are the ones who have to intimidate and use violence and crush their fellow man. And that is an awful, awful thing to have to do. And so these high salaries, they entice people into what could be uh, this life of misery that a lot of these officers feel uh, that a lot of these officers live, I should say. And, uh, 
you know, at the expense of all other municipal services. So it's very, very sad where we are as a city right now. And and I do hope the city council uh, stands up to Adams on this. So the city council has to sign off on this? They don't have to. Well, so Adams has the unilateral legal authority to um to enter into the, these agreements. That That's his right under state law. However, the agreement has to be funded by the city council. And yet there is plenty of precedent of local legislatures in New York rejecting uh, union contracts and saying, no, we're not going to fund that. Um, so, I mean, it actually, I believe in 2018, this city council did that with the correctional officers contract by uh, because they were demanding certain reforms be made to discipline in, in the correctional officers. But um, so the city council would be perfectly within their rights to either say, no, we're not going to fund this a or B we're only going to fund this. If you give us some stuff that we want. And that is where, you know, it, it's quite interesting. I mean, there really should by all rights be another round of negotiations here between the council and the mayor. I, I am, I, I don't want to say I'm optimistic because I'm never, I've, I haven't been optimistic in 25 years, but I, I would hope that the city council would be willing to stand up to the mayor on this and to force him to come to the table about this contract and about the NYPD's role in our city. Right. Um, we have to wrap up here in a minute. Um, we haven't had any uh, uh, callers uh, come in. So, I mean, uh, you know, it's been good uh, continue to talk with you about this. Um, you, you had another uh, fantastic article, article in our uh, uh, April print edition called Who is the law for, and uh, you were looking back on the Hector LaSalle nomination uh, battle. Um, a new uh, chief judge uh, nominee was announced yesterday by Kathy Hochul, a much more uh, progressive uh, judge named uh, Rowan Wilson. Uh, we'll continue to follow that at the Independent. And, of course, the uh, the the rulings come out of, coming out of uh, Texas around Mifeprestone, uh, the um, abortion pill, uh, really shocking. And, unfortunately, we, we don't have time to get into that uh, it's, we have to wrap up here in a minute, John. But um, I I just recommend anybody uh, get a hold of that article. You can find it at independent.org or in our print edition. Uh, we really appreciate all the uh, incredible I- coverage you do of these issues. Yeah, my pleasure, John. I, I you know I love writing for the indie. I I like I I am grateful that you have given me an outlet to not just rant about Eric Adams, but also to um, kind of delve into a little bit of my esoteric ideas about uh legal philosophy which is really the basis of that last article that that i wrote so yeah if anyone wants to read it it's there okay john tufel uh the indies uh uh nypd watchdog thank you for joining us on the independent news hour this evening happy to be here thanks a lot john okay well we have to wrap it up here uh we'll be back next uh tuesday with another show uh I um, want to thank our board operator, Reggie Johnson. Also, Amma Gagarian helped out with this show. Uh, we've got more great programming coming up on WBAI this evening, including Out FM uh, and, and Revolution uh, by the Minute and, some, and other great shows. So please stay tuned to this station. And our uh, final song here is Right Back Where We Started From by Maxine Nightingale. <laughs>